0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast for November 15th, 2017. In this episode, we'll run down the basics of two-factor authentication. Plus, you've probably heard of Bitcoin, but you may not know that bad actors can hijack your computer's processing power to increase their Bitcoin stash. We'll tell you what to watch out for. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast,
1: Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Josh, do you use online banking? I do. I bet knowing you, you're a belt and suspenders guy. You're probably really secure in your online banking. You definitely use two-factor authentication, right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, every place that I can, I, I always turn that on.
1: Yeah, this is interesting how in the past couple of years, two-factor authentication has changed from something that was sort of an enterprise feature originally and, and, or or things that the, the Pentagon, the CIA used. And now it's all over the place. And, and I was just thinking about this the other day. I use online banking, I have my personal account, I have my business account, my Amazon account has two-factor, my Apple account has two-factor, PayPal has two-factor authentication. Pretty much any account that I use that involves money, I've got two-factor authentication on.
2: Yeah, that's definitely what you wanna do, especially for anything that that involves monetary transactions, you always, always wanna have two-factor authentication. And really, um, I, I mean, just about anything that involves your personal identity even your social media identity um you know most uh, social media sites even have options for two factor authentication and um you know honestly uh, just about any place where you can log in if if they give you that option it's probably a good idea to turn it on
1: yeah good point i also have it on twitter and facebook i have it with my web hosting and i have it with my email hosting as well my domain name registrar so yeah it's anything where if someone got control, they could mess me up. Uh, a Mac journalist, I know Chuck Joyner, he does the Mac Voices podcast. And a couple of weeks ago, someone hijacked his Twitter account. So presumably he didn't have two-factor authentication. And the person then got into another account and it took him a couple of weeks to sort it out. It, it can really be a mess. And, and in that case, it wasn't financial. It was simply someone taking control of his accounts and they might be spamming people Or they might even contact people who are friends of that person saying, listen, I need some help. Can you send me some money? I mean, it's a pretty common scam, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I'm stuck overseas and I don't have any money with me. And can you wire me some? (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely seen that happen before.
1: I've gotten emails from people whose email accounts have been compromised. And it's from so-and-so saying, yeah, I'm stuck wherever. But if you just pay attention, you can tell by the way it's written that it's not that person. But... If someone sends this to 100 friends of someone, say friends and coworkers, one or two people might think it really is that person.
2: Right. Yeah. So there, there are definitely a lot of things that someone can do once they take over your accounts. Obviously, well, it's pretty clear what they can do if they take over your bank account or something like that, but... Um, but, but you give, I mean, that's a really good example of even your social media accounts. Um, you know, it's definitely possible for somebody to do some pretty terrible things to, to your friends, including stealing money from them, pretending to be you. And, and really there's a lot of other potential things that somebody could do with, with your accounts. You talked about having your domain registrar account needing two-factor authentication there. So if you own a .com or whatever You want to make sure that you don't lose control of that site you know chuck was lucky that he was able to regain control of his twitter account because sometimes people aren't quite that lucky
1: probably the most important account to protect other than your bank is your email because if someone gets a hold of your email account they can go to websites where you've logged in they can say that they've forgotten the password and a password reset link will be sent to that email address So if someone has control of your email address, they can potentially get into all your other accounts. Maybe not a bank account, but any other account where it's a simple login with an email and a password.
2: That's absolutely correct. And in fact, you bring up a really good point that email is probably, even though people may not think of it as something that really needs protecting, because of that password reset functionality that most websites and services have, you definitely, definitely need to make sure that you have a really good password and whenever possible, two-factor authentication for logging into your email account.
1: So let's talk about how two-factor authentication works. I think the basic principle is that the two factors are A, something you know, and B,
2: something you have. Is that correct? Right. So a password is a a great example, the most common example of something that you know. It's something that you can memorize. And there, there are other factors as well. So Sometimes two-factor authentication is also called um, multi-factor authentication. In theory, you could have you know, any two of three factors or, or even all three factors. So what are the factors? There's, there's something that you know, as we talked about, like, for example, a password. There's something that you have, which uh, sometimes can be a, a device that you carry with you. So for example, a text message, if if someone sends you a text message, your phone is something that you have. You might also have um, a security key or dongle.
1: So I'm holding up a dongle that I use for my bank. When I log into my bank account, I have to enter my username, my password, and I have to enter a code. I press a code onto this little dongle and it gives me a six digit code that I enter on the website. I've never really understood how this works. When this was first set up, I had to sort of enter my account number in some sort of authorization code. And does it sort of tell the device to make a thousand codes that will then be accepted at any time because the device doesn't know what time it is?
2: Well, typically the, the way that those devices work is that they do have a clock or a counter kind of thing built in. And that the way that they work is that um, it has kind of a, a time period when it will accept a particular code. So you get a little bit of leeway of like a couple of minutes or something like that. I mean, basically the, the basics of it are that you get a little bit of leeway one way or another. So when you press the button on your device, it shows you a code and that code is good for, you know, probably a couple of minutes. Even after it disappears, it's probably still valid for a little while. And then when you use that code with the website that you're authenticating to, It uses that to adjust what the website thinks that your device's time synchronization is. And so it tries to adjust accordingly. That's at least how the RSA tokens worked. And that was back in 2011.
1: That was back before most people didn't even know what two-factor authentication was. (laughs) Right. So you mentioned earlier about SMS, and that's the most common method for getting a code. It's usually a six-digit code. There are other ways you can do this. You can use an authenticator app. Now, for instance, I use 1Password as a password manager. And for some of my accounts where I've set up two-factor authentication, I can go into 1Password and I can get a six-digit code. And it displays the code with a little circle with the, a countdown from 30 seconds to zero. And at the end of 30 seconds, it creates another code. So what this means is at some point when I set up two-factor authentication the website communicated with my computer to know what the time was, to know if the time was correct. And then the app that's generating the code has to match what the website is expecting at that time. It's all very obscure, and this is a good reason you should always have your Mac automatically adjust your time in the date and time preferences of system preferences. Because if the time drifts a bit, you could have problems with logins like
2: this. Right. That's correct. And you could actually have a lot of other problems potentially too with, um, website certificates, for example, something that happened a lot on older Macs was that the built-in battery that keeps track of your time would die eventually. And then your date and time would reset. And so every time you shut down your computer and turned it back on, it would think that it was 1970 or something like that. And then when you would try to go to a website with HTTPS, you would get a a warning saying that the certificate is not yet valid or or something to that effect. So it would give you this big scary alert and you probably would be perfectly secure if you were going to that website. It's just that um, because your time is not synchronized with the actual current time, it doesn't match up with when that certificate's validity period is. And so, yeah, you definitely want to make sure that you're, you're keeping your date and time accurate.
1: Especially if you travel a lot with a laptop, you want to go into the date and time preferences and system preferences and make sure that set date and time automatically is checked. Because if you go to a different time zone, you'll be an hour away and this could pose all sorts of problems. Right. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. It's, if nothing else... You may have a problem with being late or way too early for an appointment.
1: (laughs) So we've talked about these dongles and and the, the sort of code generators and things that I have. What other kinds of devices are there that can be that second factor in addition to something you know, like your password?
2: Well, what's really interesting here is that there are things that you can use to authenticate that have to do with who or what you are <laughs> so things that prove that you're human to <laughs> you sort of yeah, to prove to prove that you're not only human but that you're a specific human every human typically has fingerprints for example and so you could use a fingerprint reader to authenticate as something that you are in a in a multi-factor system you would put in for example a, a password something you know and and also you would press your finger to a fingerprint reader and that authenticates you in two different ways. It, it authenticates you by something you know and something that you are. You could also, it's its certainly possible to have a, a multi-factor system that uses all three factors. So something that you have as well. It's very, very rare that any system really uses all three factors. And the reason for that is that the more factors that that you have in play at the same time the more potential for you to not have access to one of those factors for example if it's something that you have you may not have it with you and so usually just two factors is good enough and that's why it's mostly most of the time they call it two-factor authentication rather than uh, multi-factor authentication so there are a couple of types of two-factor authentication that apple uses
1: on its products it's Interesting. And and we don't think of them as two-factor, but they technically are. When you turn on an iPhone, if it's been asleep or if it's restarted, you have to enter your passcode. So that's the something you know. And if you've turned on Touch ID, you can later get into the phone with your fingerprint, which is something you have. Is that technically two-factor or is that just one factor the first time and one factor the second time.
2: Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's, it's something that's one factor one time and, and a different factor another time. Um, in fact, this is something that I've been hoping that Apple would eventually implement on their devices where uh, I, I would actually prefer to put my you know, thumb on my touch ID reader, and also type in my password. I, I would rather do both of those things every time that I need, needed to get into my phone because that's actually a lot more secure. It's less convenient, absolutely, but it provides a lot more security if you can can actually put in two factors at the same time, and it requires both factors.
1: So here's another one that they do. I'm holding up my wrist showing my Apple Watch. When I come to my computer and wake it up, it unlocks because I've authenticated it with the Apple Watch. Now, this is very interesting because this feature where the Apple Watch wakes up a Mac only works if you have turned on two-factor authentication for your iCloud account. So you have authenticated yourself and your device through two-factor authentication because with Apple's two-factor authentication, you have to enter a code every time you use a new device for the first time. So you've authenticated the device, you've authenticated the watch by its connection to your iPhone, which you've authenticated with your passcode or fingerprint. And as long as you don't take the watch off, it's still considered to be authenticated. That gets a little bit complicated,
2: doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, it, it, it took a minute to parse that sentence. But yeah, I, th- I think you got that right.
1: There's a, long, there's a long chain of things going on there. So you have to be authenticated on the phone, which authenticates the watch, but it can only wake up the computer if two-factor authentication is also on to authenticate the device. So this is 11-factor authentication. This is Apple's 3D chess here going on.
2: (laughs) Well, okay, it's not 11-factor authentication. There's kind of a game that you have to play in order to use that as your factor to authenticate yourself.
1: (laughs) But once it's set up, it's very smooth. You don't even notice it anymore. And that's when this becomes interesting. I just press the space bar on my keyboard and my Mac wakes up, takes a second, it says unlocking with Apple Watch, and then it unlocks and I don't have to type my password anymore.
2: Yeah, technically, even though you've gone through all those steps in order to make your watch work, you're really only using one factor at that moment of login.
1: Right, at that particular moment. Correct. So one of the most common ways people get codes for two-factor authentication is via SMS. And you were telling me before the show that SMS is relatively insecure.
2: That's correct. Yeah, unfortunately SMS um, is a bit flawed. Now it's it's absolutely better than not having a second factor. So if you only log into one of your accounts with a password and that's it, there's the possibility that that password could get out, right? And, and if that password does get out, if, if an attacker somehow learns of your password, then you're out of luck, um, because that's all they need to get into your account.
1: But there's a certain amount of convenience with SMS that you don't have to mess around with a dongle, you don't have to mess around with an authenticator app and where you only have 30
2: seconds to, to type in a code. That's true. Where SMS is potentially a problem is that it's possible to do something called a SIM swap. And basically what that means is that if somebody has some personal information about you, they can potentially call up your mobile phone carrier and say that they're you and that you lost your phone and you're trying to get your new phone set up with the same phone number. And basically what what this means is that it's possible for somebody who who knows some certain information about you, for example, maybe the last four digits of your social security number if you're in the United States, or there might be other ways that someone could quote unquote prove that they're you. And then they can convince your mobile phone carrier to put your phone number onto a different phone. And now the attacker has the something that you have because it's not really something that you have anymore. And that's that's where a phone number is potentially problematic when it comes to SMS authentication. Now again, that's still better than nothing because someone has to go through a lot of trouble to do this sim swap. So you know you're you're definitely better off using a password and an SMS than only using a password.
1: And don't use one, two, three, four, five, six as your password. Please.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, there are big giant lists of frequently used passwords online. Basically, if if it's something that you can easily think of or that someone can easily guess or that anyone else in the entire world may have ever used, don't use it as a password. You don't wanna use somebody's name. You don't wanna use a pet's name or any combination of a name and a couple of numbers. Everybody knows all of those passwords. Just assume that if someone is really trying to break into your account, they can figure out your password if you've got a password such as those examples.
1: That's a really good point, Josh. And I think what we're going to do in a future show is spend an episode talking about how to create good passwords, secure passwords, how to manage them, how to remember them, etc., I'll put a number of links into the show notes from the Intego Max Security blog about two-factor authentication. We've written a number of articles about Apple's implementation, about using it with things like Twitter and Facebook and all that. So do check the show notes so you can learn how this works.
0: Have a security-related question for Kirk and Josh? Send your comments and questions to podcast at Intego.com. That's podcast at Intego.com. Coming up, how much do you know about Bitcoin? Kirk and Josh have an explainer and discuss potential security implications when the Intego Mac Podcast continues in just about a minute. We're only a few episodes in, but we're really happy with the number of listeners checking out and subscribing to the Intego Mac Podcast. So as a special thanks to all our podcast subscribers, Intego wants to give you something more. 50% 50% savings on Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save fifty percent. That's Intego Podcast to save fifty percent on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. And remember, all Intego products have been updated for compatibility and are ready to install on the latest Mac operating system, High Sierra. It's a great time to save 50% on Mac Premium Bundle X9 using the promo code INTEGOPODCAST at checkout. INTEGO, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com
1: today. One of our listeners, Stephen, wrote in with a question. He says, what is this Bitcoin I keep hearing about? It sounds like it's some sort of a scam. Is it true that people make their own Bitcoins on their computers? Why is Bitcoin so valuable? And that's a really great question, Josh, because Bitcoin's been in the press lately. I've been confused about this myself. And apparently there's some sort of malware where people install something on your computer
2: to use your CPU. What's going on here? That's a great question. I think where we should start is talking about what Bitcoin and really what cryptocurrencies are. Bitcoin was an idea that was conceived in 2008. And first implemented in in 2009, and I guess the best way to describe it is that this is a currency that exists that's not based on anything physical in you know in the physical world. This this is a currency that's entirely based on a digital system. It's not controlled by a government, which is why a lot of people really like Bitcoin, or why
1: a lot of people don't really like Bitcoin if they're in government.
2: That's a good point as well, yes. And in fact, there are some governments that have um, banned the use of cryptocurrencies because they have no control over them. But Bitcoin has gained the most popularity because it's kind of been around longer than the majority of the cryptocurrencies that are out there. There are a lot of newer ones that have come around recently. One of the ones that's been in the news recently is Monero. And The reason that these cryptocurrencies have been in the news in part is that there's a new way that attackers have figured out to be able to use your devices to mine cryptocurrencies. To create cryptocurrencies, your processor has to work really hard at it. And in fact, it's not easy for any one device to be able to create a coin in in cryptocurrency.
1: Here's what I don't understand. These coins have zero value and you're not creating value. What are you what is your computer doing? Is it just sort of running on a hamster wheel for a while? Or is it actually carrying out calculations that have value to someone someplace? The inherent value of money used to be gold and it's now the stability of a government and the ability of a government to return the value of the bill that you have in your pocket, but there's no inherent value of Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, this is a common thing that comes up when when people are kind of discussing, well, how how is Bitcoin valuable? Basically, the, the idea is that it can't be based on something in the real world, but it does have to be based on something that is scarce. And so there is a cap on the number of Bitcoins that can ever be made and so now when you're mining for Bitcoins, you're only mining f- for actually a fraction of a Bitcoin. So if, if you successfully mine a coin, you're actually at this point in time, you're only getting a very small fraction of a coin. And that amount of a coin that you're earning decreases over time. So it's getting very, very expensive to be able to mine Bitcoins and to actually be able to generate currency for yourself and make make money by mining Bitcoins. What, what these attackers have discovered is that they can use your processing power to mine Bitcoins. So if they have compromised your system, whether it's um, your Mac or even uh, an iOS device with this new method that they're using, they can use your device's processing power to spend time mining a cryptocurrency. And what that what that does is it gives them access to a lot more processing power than they'd ever be able to, to pay for on their own. If somebody wants to, to start mining Bitcoins right now, good luck. I mean, it's too expensive. No, nobody can really do it anymore unless you live in an area where you have really, really inexpensive power or you're producing your own power, which then you're using for, you know, all these processing cycles and so forth.
1: Right. Say you have solar panels and you get a few computers because otherwise it costs more to pay for the electricity than the value of the Bitcoins. Far more.
2: Yeah. In in most places, that's absolutely the case. And so if, if somebody with ill intentions wants to mine Bitcoin one of the ways that they can do it is to use infected systems. So they might infect your computer with, uh, with some malware that has the functionality of being able to mine Bitcoins in the background. But this new attack is that they can actually use your browser. They can run scripts in your browser to mine Bitcoin or in, in other cases to mine Monero or different kinds of cryptocurrencies.
1: So you go to a tainted website and all of a sudden your your processor is being used for someone else's financial gain. Exactly. You're you're making
2: money for somebody else. Now, some some people would argue, well, that's not such a big deal because I'd prefer not to have advertisements displayed to me. I'd rather do something else so that I'm not having to be barraged with advertisements all the time. And so, yeah, that's probably not such a bad thing. That's one school of thought. Another is that, well, they're probably still going to barrage you with ads and also be using any leftover CPU cycles to mine for cryptocurrency. So they're they're making money off of you left and right. They're making money off of you by showing you ads, and they're also making money off of you by stealing your processor cycles. And And so one of the interesting things here is that although some websites, as recently as maybe about a month ago, have started to advertise to their their customers or their users that they are doing this there are a lot of websites that don't advertise that they're using your processing cycles to mine for cryptocurrency that's where it gets kind of funny because now they're directly making money from your processing cycles they're create they're raising your energy bill and you're not getting anything out of it.
1: Well, you're getting some heat. If it's winter, uh, you might welcome your your home or office getting a little bit warmer from your computer. But you'll you'll eventually hear the noise, won't you? I know that my iMac, if I'm doing anything that's really processor intensive for more than a minute or so, the fan goes on.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: If I'm ripping a a DVD or something, or sometimes when we're doing Skype on video, Skype uses a lot of the processor. So you should notice this if this happens.
2: Yeah, if if you've got a device that has a fan in it, your fan is gonna kick up into high gear if if your device is mining a cryptocurrency because it's gonna use all available processing power to do it. If you have a MacBook Pro or an iMac, anything that's got a fan, you'll you'll definitely hear that kick in. However, if you've got an iPhone, they don't have fans in them. And so you're you're not going to hear anything going on. You you might notice that your device is running more slowly.
1: But can that actually affect the iPhone or can it can only affect it when a, an infected app is frontmost? When apps are in the background, they are paused,
2: aren't they? Yeah, that that's true. So, if you let's say have Safari in the foreground and you're browsing websites. And if you happen upon a site where the site owner has embedded this code or where where an attacker has injected this code into, into a site that they've taken control of, then Safari is in the foreground and it can absolutely be mining cryptocurrencies just because of a, of a JavaScript that's running in the background on that page.
1: Right. And if it, this happens long enough, your iPhone will get warm and you probably will
2: notice it. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. It, even though you don't have fans because of using all that processing power, your device is definitely going to heat up.
1: Okay, so how can you protect yourself on the desktop?
2: One of the ways that that you can find out whether your CPU, that that is your central processing unit, your processor in in your computer, is doing a lot of work, a lot more than it normally would do, is you can use Activity Monitor on your Mac. Activity Monitor is an application that comes with Mac OS, You can find it in the Applications folder under Utilities. An Activity Monitor has a feature where you can have the dock icon show you a graph of your processor usage over time.
1: Right, so if your computer is very busy, you'll see this. But of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that someone is mining Bitcoins. It could be Spotlight that's indexing a disk. It could be photos that's uploading or downloading. I mean, there are a number of reasons why your Mac's processor may be very busy. But it's just not common for that to happen for a long time.
2: Yeah. As a matter of fact, you may even see your browser using a ton of processing power, and it may not even be cryptocurrency that's being mined by a web page. It may, in some cases, just be an advertisement that's going berserk. Or a script on on a page that's gone out of control and it's just using up your processing cycles.
1: Right. And if something like that does happen, just quit your browser and relaunch it and that'll solve that problem.
2: Right. Or if you have your tabs reload whenever you reopen your, your browser, then you want to try to close that tab first. Or as many tabs as you know you don't really need open right now, you want to close those. And that that could very well solve the problem even without restarting the app. In addition to using Activity Monitor to be able to see what's going on with your processor, there are other things that you can do. Now, I take a crazy sledgehammer approach and I like to use an an extension in Firefox called NoScript. And what that does is it blocks all active content by default on the page. This is not something that the majority of users are probably gonna wanna do because it breaks. Everything.
1: Don't try this at home, listeners. You won't be able to load most websites.
2: <laughs> you can not even log in to most sites if you have NoScript on and you haven't specifically whitelisted some of the active content on that page. So NoScript is the sledgehammer approach. The other sledgehammer approach would be to just completely disable JavaScript in your browser. Again, it's going to break almost everything on the web because most sites use JavaScript now. But what you can do though, is you can use an extension for your browser that is specifically being designed and updated to know about these mining websites. There's scripts on particular domains that are most commonly running in the background when your browser is mining cryptocurrency. There are a couple of extensions that you can use. One of them is called NoCoin, with a space in between, that's uh, available for Firefox, and there's also one called AntiMiner, and that's all one word with no hyphen or space or anything, just AntiMiner for Chrome, and those are both open source, they're both popular ones that have have a lot of downloads and good reviews. Um, So you can check those out depending on what browser you prefer. Now, a lot of people probably use Safari Safari does not have an extension listed in, in, in Apple's official store that blocks these coin mining sites.
1: But on Safari, there are a number of ad blocker extensions that have rules that will block these things. So if you do use an ad blocker, look up and see if they have an extension for this. This is something that many of these apps are starting to roll in now because it is becoming a big problem. Well, Josh, I don't think I'm going to bother mining Bitcoins anytime soon, but I will keep an eye on my CPU. If I do hear my fan go on, I'll check my browser tabs. In the meantime, have a good week and stay secure.
2: Thanks, Kirk. You too.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Your comments and questions are welcome. Please feel free to send email correspondence to podcast at Intego.com. We may use your question on a future episode. Links to topics and information Kirk and Josh mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where you'll find details on the full line of award-winning Intego security and utility software, Intego.com.